Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hey, this is episode 84. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So listeners, welcome to January 2021. As the internet meme goes, if you thought 2020 was bad, wait till it is old enough to drink. That's right. <laughs> 2021 is just going to say to 2020, here, hold my beer. Hold That's my right. beer. Well, <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> so, you didn't make it up. I mean, you're just reporting what uh, you heard, right? Yeah, it's just, it, that's on the internet. So, guys, 2021 marks the 80th anniversary of U.S. entry into World War II. Uh, December 7, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy launched a surprise aerial bombardment of the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And soon after, Germany would also declare war on the Allies... The United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union would then be set to see the war through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, World War II, of course, shapes the modern war, much as we have said with World War I. Sure. Uh, you know, you can't understand where you are unless you understand where you've been. Amen. And World War II is a big part of that. So, listeners, we are planning a series of episodes on World War II throughout 2021. Um just like we did for the Civil War. Right. Yeah, what well, we did for the Civil War. However, for this one, we're going to go a little deeper than just the battles. Well, we're more ambitious this time. Yeah. That was know. four episodes. This is like eight. Yeah. <laughs> right. We only did one year yeah. uh, for uh, the Civil, Civil War. War. Right. So we just went into battles. We didn't go into the, the depths. But I think this time we're going to try and do not just the, the pivotal battles throughout the war, but also then explore things like... The results, the United Nations, the Holocaust, and these yeah. other important oh, issues. Yeah. It's just too big not to. Yep. So most of the histories for 2021 are going to be uh, in this vein. Not all of them. Well, but, we, but pal- most we of palette them. cleanse periodically with a one-off here and there, just because we don't want to, you know, we want to keep the momentum going without. Well, you know, totally variety is not just spice of life, but I mean, it's what this thing is about. Uh-huh. Yes. We are not pigeonholed into any one. Type oh of, yeah, the of, variety that we're doing just with this meta theme is pretty impressive. I mean, yeah. we we worked hard to try to get these eight episodes. Uh, really, some pretty good stuff. Yeah, yep, it's going to be good stuff. But the first up is a battle, and it it's one of the very again we want to focus on these very pivotal battles, the ones that actually met the the Allies won. Right, it's a battle, but really, I mean it's. The scope of the war. <laughs> well, yeah, the battle lasts from the time the war begins until the time the war ends, <laughs> and never ends during that time. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's a, a battle, meta, but it's it a is meta a battle. It's a series of skirmishes. Yeah. It's a, uh, a campaign. A campaign. It's a campaign, yes. and it's and it's unique too. There's, yes. I mean, it's it's nothing. There's nothing else like it. Even the war in the Pacific really isn't the same. We yeah. talked no. about that in show prep. Yes, but the historians call it the Battle of the Atlantic, right. and we're calling this episode the Wolves Among Us. And that's, of course, taken from the uh, wolf pack tactics used by the German Unterseeboots. Unterseeboots. Very good. You, uh, you do a good those... German accent. Uh, <laughs> well, I've watched a lot of war movies. Oh, uh, uh, yes, know. that's right. That, that pigeon German that comes through. I think I saw something, you know. We have ass <laughs> making you talk. We can do this all day. Come on. <laughs> So, you know, when you watch Kelly's Heroes on a loop, you kind of get well, a little bit this, of the... This is yeah. true. That's true. So... The, the term wolf pack and those tactics come from Admiral Carl Dönitz. Yes. Uh, who was not in charge of the Navy itself. He was in charge of the submarine arm at the start of the war. But he would eventually rise... Well, to be Hitler's successor, we got that for, for what, right. three days, <laughs> two <laughs> yeah, weeks. Oh, yeah, exactly. He is the he is the only one left standing ultimately yeah. at the end of the war after Hitler commits suicide. He stays loyal, but he's always not. But he's not a Hitler sycophant. He's no Goering or Goebbels. Yeah. He's a military guy. Yeah, and he was respected throughout uh, all everywhere. Uh, when people had heard, you know, these are apocryphal stories perhaps, but, you know, they hear when they understood that Dernitz was in charge, they recognized, okay, we can get out of this honorably, as as well as you can do, well, you know, considering where we yeah. were. Yeah. That was a, you know... That was a very relative term at the yeah, time. Yeah, yes. well, and, and even Dernitz ends up very, this rosy notion that 
the Flemsburg, Flem, I think that's what it's called, Flemsburg government yeah. would uh, somehow negotiate with the Allies, and, all, yeah, and they which, basically said, no, 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 you, you're, you're surrendering or you starve. That's right. Um, yeah. Dernitz actually ends up surviving the Nuremberg. We're going to do an episode on Nuremberg later, but he's mm-hmm. one of the few that actually comes out relatively unscathed which is unheard of, because Nuremberg was a justice moment. It was not meant to be a witch hunt, but you can't avoid all yeah, that that's, completely. That's, I mean, and, we'll go into that in And it's not so. to say that what went on in Nuremberg was not justified. That, that's Because certainly yeah. those guys needed brought to trial, but you're right. Once they got started, that they were going to... Vengeance is mine. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, there's part yeah. of that. We'll go deeper and into that one later. unavoidable. Yeah, that's correct. Well, there's never been war crime trials before, for goodness sakes. Well, we don't know what we're doing. We've never done this before. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. You know, Whoever, the term war crimes was basically come up with for yeah, this purpose. Created, yeah, yeah, because they knew something was different. Anyway, yeah. we're talking about the Atlantic. Yes. yes, the Atlantic. The Battle of the, the Atlantic. Pond. So, of course, the primary feature is... The Brit, uh, the German aim is to starve Britain, and yes. the British aim is to survive long enough to hopefully get the Americans involved. I mean yeah. that that's kind of Churchill's idea right from the start. Is someday the Americans are going to join us? We don't know how, but it's going to happen. Right, and we've just got to stay afloat, so to speak. Long enough. Well, even during that period of time, there are different movements and different moments going on because Poland is invaded in September 39, but this begins immediately. France is still an issue, it's still a major player at the beginning of this. France had the fourth largest navy going into the war. That's a big, big deal. And what they thought, and of course, Churchill's not in charge until uh, I think it's April or May. Of 40. Of 40, yes. Right. So uh, the Chamberlain government is kind of, I don't want to say inept, but I'll say it. It's kind of inept on this sort of thing. They, they, they do not come off well. No, they don't. Out of the whole thing. Um, and uh, the fact that Hitler rolls up France almost, you know, essentially immediately, uh, without any, with almost, you know, easily. It, it's a... Six weeks. Yeah, it, it, I mean, yeah, cause, it, it, because it, it, there's a whole period. It doesn't happen right away, but when it does happen, it's six weeks. Yes. Right, because we have the period of the Sitzkrieg. Yeah, the yeah. phony war. The phony it's always war, yeah. called the phony war by historians, where yeah. essentially very, very little happens. Right. Until the invasion of France and the fall of Norway and things like that. Well, yeah, because it's like, oh well, Hitler, he's just doing his thing. Yeah, we're we're going to declare war, but it's almost half-hearted in many ways because the will of the people they didn't feel threatened. You know, those are poles. We don't like it. We've got our interests there, but that's not us. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're slobs. Well, that's I right. I mean, that's that's yeah. the, well, know, and, that, and there's, there's a racist component to it. Yeah. Yes, and, and and there's no real like obvious thing to do either. Well, that's right. I mean, because there's no way to come to the rescue of the poles from Britain. Right. Right. So we start, what do but you do? well, you start a blockade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you that and you you start you, you cut off supplies to Germany. Which basically that's part of that's really all they could do at this point. And next thing you know, the Germans are rolling up France, right? Because the, uh, the obviously the critical mistake there. Cause we, you know, often we talk about the critical mistakes because you know we like the what ifs as we talked about in sure, the show. Yeah. But really, one of the most critical mistakes was letting Germany do what it wanted and yeah. take the initiative early on. Yeah. I didn't know this until a few years ago. I was doing some reading, and granted, they were probably inferior. Although early on, maybe not. France had more tanks than Germany at the start of the war. Yeah. Well, That's an astounding thing. Nobody realizes But that. without a doctrine on how to use but without them. a doctrine, how, yeah. But that's kind of part of what, where I'm going is the you know some of the critical mistakes. If, you, if your military is of the mindset to take the initiative, that doctrine is going to get figured out. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, De Gaulle right. is really the only guy with that idea in the whole tank corps. That's what he started out as, right. a tank guy. And then, so that's how he ends up really emerging as the guy uh, that Later would lead in France in exile. Because he's the only one that saw it, and they all of a sudden, oh, yeah, didn't you tell us we should have known better? Well, maybe we should follow you. Uh, whereas 
Hitler has plenty. Rommel is just the most noteworthy. I mean, he writes the book. We remember the movie in Patton. Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. But yeah. uh, that's you know that was already long set beforehand. Yeah. But well, the they had, Navy they was had many tank officers. They who did. Knew what they were doing the right. Yeah. Uh, which is ironic, considering they didn't invent the darn thing. They adapted it. Yeah. Uh, well, that and you know that sometimes that's best because yeah. you're not pre- you don't have preconceived notions about it. That's right. So letting him take the the initiative really plays into his hands. I think that helps with the Battle of the Atlantic because he gets to decide what to do, where, and when until the U.S. gets involved on land. Then he has to respond more so than, than he has yeah. been. Well, also, once he invades Russia, you know, yeah. but... And, and yeah. we're going to talk about that, talk, too. We're going to do Stalingrad, yeah. That's, yeah. that's so, a big one, yeah. But the, the, so the Battle of the Atlantic, again, is this idea that, you know, Dernitz has... The submarine arm, but it's an aid still of capital ships. It's yes. still thought of as to really be a navy, you've got to have battleships and and surface vessels. Right. And the real head of the navy at the time is Eric Rader. He's an old school guy. That's what he wants done is the surface vessels. But the German surface vessels are really no match for what the Brits can do. Right. Well, the they're just aren't enough. They're, that's yeah. part of it. They're technologically they're they're pretty innovative, but they they you got to have critical mass on this, and they yeah. never can get that. They right. try. They they just they operate almost like solo. Well, and, right. and the Brits there are operate no fleets. As fleets. That's yeah. right. Operate well, as task forces. As, so as, they come up with this idea that it's commerce raiding that we have to do. And I think that's yeah. where you were kind of going is there's the strategy. Destroy Britain's commerce. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and and battleships, they're pretty damn good for that because they can sink the hell out of anything they, they can get can, their hands on. But the amount of, I forget what number I saw, but... There's a significant number of submarines that can be built out of a single battleship. And that's yes. where they end up going, is because... Yeah. Right, but I mean, they spent a lot of time, money, and manpower building... Uh, I think they ended up with four major battleships. The Bismarck, uh, the Tirpitz, Prince Eugen, and there's another one who I cannot remember. I cannot recall, yeah. but... Uh, and yeah, then several, several pocket battleships. Pocket, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah there are others. The yeah. Von Spee is the most famous. Is the Groff Spray, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right, that was another one. And, uh, so, you uh, know, they lose the battle uh, off the plate, uh, River Plate in, in uh, Uruguay, I guess it is, and... But again, they're, they're, they operate the surface vessels almost like solo units. And so you, you attack a convoy with a single battleship. Yes, it's better than all the vessels around, yeah. but it's only by itself. And the Brits team up. They right. always have a task force. Well, once force. the convoy scatters, you're only going to get so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they uh, can, until they decide to build the wolf packs. Yes. And then again, it's Dernitz's idea. Yeah. No more acting uh, as lone wolves, as solo acts. We're going to form a what essentially is a picket line yeah. of submarines, wait for the convoys to come to us, yeah. and then I've got some really great, brave, innovative commanders in the submarines, yeah. and they are going to pop up right in the middle of the convoys and start sinking the merchant ships. That's right, and, and blow and the hell out of them. And there's very and, little and they're everywhere. Could do. that you, they, they don't... Uh, the convoy system almost did break down. It was very close because as long as there were enough wolves out there against them, they couldn't survive. Right. Uh, it was nearly abandoned. Yeah. At one point, which would which would have been hap- would have happened at exactly the wrong point. Right? Yeah. Because it was pretty much from that point on, not ineffective but declining effectiveness. Yeah. But the Brits used some very counterintuitive analysis to. Get where they needed to be. They they realized that a convoy in the open ocean, no matter how big it is, is still pretty hard to find. Yeah, yeah. So the the counterintuitive part though is the bigger convoy actually has less of what do you call it an attack surface uh-huh. than lots of small convoys. Yes, and so. Get them together. Get the ships together. Get big groups and get your escorts. We're much more likely to get across the Atlantic. Yeah. Well, and goes, it reduces goes, the opportunity of uh, inter- interdiction, even though it increases the number of ships that could be interdicted at any one time. But 
even with the wolf pack, because as we talked about in show prep, there's never really enough U-boats at any given time to have the impact that they wanted. Yeah. Um, short you're only, especially once the escorts uh, come into play, you're, there's only so many ships you can sink at one time. Yeah. Uh, before the escorts going to drive you off, so you may lose two or three, but it's out of a hundred. Yeah. As opposed to two or three out of. Five. Yeah, because once you reveal yourself as a submarine, you're a target. That's right, and you only have so much time to That's get right. in your. You got to be hit and get, and they were good at that. They weren't. There weren't enough of them. Uh, you know, if you've got, you know, and these are totally pulled out of my behind numbers, but if you've got thir- fifty ships and five U-boats, uh, you get how many before they before you're caught and you have to pull off you know and, and submerge and move around maybe you can do it maybe you can't but what would you do if you had 50 ships and 20 U-boats right it would have been a totally different thing if they'd have had that that technological numbers and they work hard I mean how many how many did they build I mean it was well we we were talking about it beforehand yeah. we don't think we came up with a number for total built and I didn't look it up beforehand like I meant to but yeah. they uh, there sank. were some like 750 almost 760 that were sank or scuttled um, yeah. during yeah. during battle yeah uh, and that's over five years ish right. so when you think about that that's a crap ton of u-boats but yeah. at any given time, the ones that you have on active duty, about a quarter of them are in dry dock getting refitted and repaired yeah, and rearmed yeah. and what have you. Because it's important to remember, too, we think of submarines today, yeah. and we think the nuclear boats sure. that submerge and stay submerged forever. Um, yeah. But at this time, even though the submarine is an effective technology, it's still a, it's kind of the original hybrid. It's a diesel-electric yeah. Yeah. boat. And so the idea is you run underneath on your batteries in the daytime, and then you can surface at night and recharge those batteries running on your diesel propulsion. Um, But that's, you know, the technology here, that becomes a big piece of this too, because it becomes a pendulum. Yeah. There's a, a point early on where the submarines do have an advantage. They call it the happy time. Yeah. And they are, they are effective. They the Germans are, call it that. Yeah, the Germans call <laughs> oh, it yes, that. Oh, yes, it because is. Because it's working. Right. Dernitz's yeah. ideas are working. Yeah. And, you know, the, they're kind of moving away then from the surface actions. And these things are working. But the technological pendulum shifts. And that's a, that's a key feature throughout this whole idea of the Battle of the Atlantic, the entire course of the war. Technology would change, and the pendulum would swing, and then the Brits would have an advantage, and then it would swing back. Um, but as 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 they again the countermeasures and developing things like ASDIC, the the sonar, the early sonar, yeah, um, it it gives a chance to discover right. the U-boats when they're submerged, right. That was huge, uh, being able to do that. And, uh, you know, where we started to go and, and, and didn't quite finish, but this is one of the things I was telling you guys early on uh, in the show prep that struck me. The battle for the Atlantic is, uh, even though it's a campaign over the course of the war, in many ways it's a microcosm of everything that went wrong for Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was literally trying to do too much too soon, with too little. <laughs> too little. Yeah, that's, and that's well put. when you think about everything that they did on land, you know, it looks like Hitler is a genius in the first part of the war because he rolls over the entire continent. Yeah. 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 Almost and effortlessly. Almost effortlessly. Yeah. And you would think, well, you know, that gives them plenty of time to consolidate, refit, rearm, blah, blah, blah. Of course, you know, invading Russia wipes out every military advantage that he had because again too much too soon with far too little and the u-boat war is exactly the same as francis as you said if he had had 20 u-boats going against 50 what difference does that make it's huge yeah absolutely you know if you have 750 that are destroyed over the course of five years you know if you could have doubled at any given time the number of u-boats that you had 
it could have changed the course of the war entirely. It mm-hmm. could have forced surrender by Britain because yeah. they very well could have starved them. Yeah. Yeah. But they were never able to achieve the tonnage, the loss of tonnage for the Brits and the Americans that they needed to keep themselves even just it on a par. Yeah. Much less to keep them. Uh, well, time worked against them very, yes. very much, and that's see that, and that's part of the strategy. I'm glad, kind of, kind of glad you brought that up because one of the reasons that Hitler looks as genius as you said is because everything they do strategically is based on get it done now because now's the advantage. It's time. Once they adapt, we're screwed because we can't prolong this. We don't have the resources to prolong this right. for five years. We've got to defeat them now. That's that. That's what Russia was predicated on. They knew that Stalin was weak and if we get him now, if we can make it all the way to the River Volga and consolidate, then that's all we need. You know, they weren't really intending, they didn't really want Russia, they wanted Ukraine and all the caucuses and all that right. stuff. Uh, and they almost, by God, they almost had it. The, the War in the Atlantic is the same thing. We've got to nail them now and starve them out now with overwhelming superiority. That's the whole Blitz yeah. idea. Uh, to break their resistance. It, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an ocean blitz. Exactly. And, like, again, it's very important to keep in mind, this is Britain's vulnerability. Yes. They're an island. All of, Almost everything they need is imported. Yeah. Right. You need any great numbers. Yeah. The equipment, the food, and it's all coming from us. And so that shipping has to be protected. Now, when the Americans get involved... Ernest King is kind of like, well, it's more important to protect the troop ships than the equipment ships. Eventually, he would kind of see it, well, yeah, we got to do both. Right. Because we've right. got to build up the equipment to prepare for Normandy. Right. So eventually, right. They that, didn't lose that, a single troop ship, which is right. important to, to show that they had the right tactics. By then. By, you know. Yeah. But certainly not enough. Again, as you said, you know, the entire ocean... You can be everywhere but nowhere because <laughs> it's so damn big. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so you you have to choose what you're going to protect. If you know what is most important. Well, yeah. you, you can make the argument, you know, that the material is replaceable. Yeah. So I can understand why that was uh, important. Besides, what does that do to troop morale? You know, if you say, well, you know, we also need to protect this thing over here. You know, it's it's the the, the you know whatever yeah. food. Material, yeah. clothing, even you know who knows yeah. what uh, what we were sending over because we sent so much. Right, I mean, we sent so much. Yeah, but you That's the heavy equipment was a was a big part. Well, of it. And, and, yeah. but you know, I think that we, we kind of we don't want to lose sight of the fact that yes, the ocean's damn big, but ultimately you're always going to the same point. You're always going to the same point and from the same point along the same routes. That's right. Yes, and that's a big part of the early German success yes, is that, that up to a certain point you can provide air cover, which is very helpful in ASW. Well, when you have France, well, that's, it, that's at later. the start, yeah. but eventually there's a gap. Uh, the Brits can cover coming in yeah. with Lancaster bombers, um, but there's a, it's called the Mid-Atlantic Gap, and yeah. that's the danger zone. And that's you know what contributes to these early successes. But as an example of the the technology swinging, I found this very interesting. Originally, the ASDIC, the sonar, uh, sweeps in front of a vessel. Yes. But your weapons, your depth charges, really are only launched from the side of the vessel. Right. So. And to the back, depending on. Yes, you can roll them off the back. But. Once you're tracking that, if you get too close, of course, you lose your signal. And then once you start dropping the weapons, then it's kind of useless. Right, because the water's all roiled up and, yeah, it's... So you're not getting a signal anymore. So a a very crafty submarine commander could take advantage of that blindness, even after being initially detected. What really changed was the the Brits developing um, forward-firing... Anti-submarine weapons, the uh, the Hedgehog, it was called this this forward-firing anti-submarine mortar. That way, you could strike as soon as you made contact. Right. You didn't have to wait until you were over top of your contact and then and lose contact in order to start uh, striking. Yeah, which that, enabled it, a far more of a pinpoint. 
accuracy. Right. So then that swings the pendulum back to the Allies. Well, and once the Allies come up with methods for detecting uh, the subs, really it, it's downhill from there because there's very little a sub can do besides submerging and staying totally silent and yeah. still to defend themselves. Once they're detected, it's not quite a duck shoot, but it's pretty damn close. It, it, your option is run. Yeah, that's... Right, yeah, because depth charges are very effective. Right. I mean, that's what because they do. Because a submarine is really only viable against uh, targets that either can't defend themselves yeah. or don't know they're there. Once yeah. a destroyer knows the sub is there, it's very difficult for the sub to win. Because, the, for one, the destroyer is always faster. So it can maneuver and still keep up with a sub if it knows where it is. And if it does manage to get damaged, unless propulsion is damaged, it can always run away. Yeah. So once and the you, sub is blind, too. Yeah. And the sub is blind. Yeah, you because you can't come up to, to, to periscope depth because that makes you even more vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you'd yeah. have to have superior numbers yeah. in order you have, to win. You have to get close with a depth charge. you got to be within about 20 feet. Yeah. But they, are, they do work. Yeah. They work. Especially I mean, they will shake a sub apart. Yeah, that's right. Especially when you just pilfer the hell out of them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, once the detection gets to a certain point, it, there really is no way for them to win. Yeah. Uh, it's at that point, it's a, it's a battle of attrition, uh, but they can't stop either, because you've got to tie up the 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 resources and the men. Uh, hunting for those those U-boats. Yeah. Well, that's why the Battle of the Atlantic lasts the entire war. Yeah. It never stops. Uh, it uh, it's, The pendulum swings back and forth here and there, but uh, and both sides take heavy losses, and both sides have significant victories. Mm -hmm. That's why it's almost impossible to get your arms around, because it's so vast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, uh, again, as soon as there's a countermeasure, then you're back and forth. The Germans have an advantage for a little while, then the Brits... Again, Enigma plays into all of this. Mm -hmm. uh, the recovery of Enigma devices and Alan Turing and, and that work at uh, Bletchley Park. Um, you know, then the Germans counter, they add a rotor yeah. to, the, to the Enigma device and make it more complicated. But then the Brits capture one of those two and they, again, Turing figures all that out. And they start to know what the German uh, orders coming from the submarine pens in France, yeah. what those orders are that are going to the ships, and they're able to maneuver the convoys around to avoid them to a degree. So, um, Martin, that's probably yes. a good point to yes, stop. Yes, I was thinking and the then, same thing, Robert. And, um, we have a, uh, a a new untried bourbon today. Yes, yes thanks to Francis. Do. Yes, right. yes Francis. So what is that it. bottle you have? Evan provided? Williams Single Barrel Vintage. It, it was uh, this one here. Was put into the oak in 2012. Yes. And just brought out in uh, just a few months ago. Yes. Actually, it's you know that's so it says uh, says on it it was barreled 829 2012 and bottled on 830 2020. That's right. So, uh, so it's been yeah, in the eight oak year, eight years. Eight years and wow, it's a, it is a good. Burn. I just cracked the the wax on the top of it there, and uh, we're all enjoying just a just a. It's got a different. Uh, uh, Effect, uh, you know, first time we tried it in the show prep, uh, hit you really in the, the, the nasal yeah. uh, passages, not in a not in a bad way. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's it's one of the things I find fascinating about bourbons, is what part of your system will be affected by it, where you feel the the burn, so yeah. to speak. And sometimes they're vastly different. Yes, you know, an Angel's Envy is. You know, in the 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 gut, yeah, uh -huh. uh, and not immediate. It, right. It's a slow burn going down, whereas this, it, you know, it pops right away. Pops right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Pops right away, and it, and it go and it goes up instead of down, which is weird because you don't feel anything down. You know, the esophagus, the stomach. There's no effects at yeah. all. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's all, all in it's the mouth, the roof, and the nasal, of the mouth roof, and, yeah, yeah. And all yeah, the the aging has made it very mellow. Yeah, very smooth. Yes. Um, I'm not getting the variety of flavors. I guess that's the mellowness. So I'm not. Yeah. I'm not getting a ton of different. There's notes. no sweetness to it. We figured no. that yeah, out. Yeah, there's it's... no caramel in this one really. No. Um, but good chew and 
there's no antiseptic part to it. I know that's one thing that you are sensitive to. Yeah. Well, uh, that's pro- if we were to, we don't often talk about failings of bourbon, and this is not a failing, but this is one of the things that's just different about most of the others. Uh, you're right that that difference of flavors. Uh, yeah. At the at the end, it's you after you get that initial pop in the in the the mouth and the nose. Uh, there's not a whole lot left. It's like it, pardon the, the, the phrase, shoots its wad early. Okay, we'll pardon that phrase. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. I know the scent I'm getting from it and the taste I'm getting from it now. Kind of a, like a candle, kind of a honey-scented candle. Really? It, it's I not have... a honey, it's not, it doesn't have that added in. But it, that's what it's starting to remind me of now. Of it's, there's sort a, there's, of a, there is a pleasant bitterness kind of to it. Beeswax. I, yeah. I, I detect a little bit of vanilla. Yes, yes, that's well, another that's, good one too. Yeah, that's that's another I, good. Yeah, I can see yeah, that. Put yeah. your nose in the glass and give a good good snort. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a little bit of a vanilla note. Yeah. Um, it's it's some great stuff though. I mean, I yes. bought this without. I've never tried it. I never knew it. I just Evan Williams will generally give you a good bourbon. Well, the reputation is there, yes. and that's one of the reasons I said I know I'm not making a mistake. And it's kind of one of those things in our repertoire. We kind of you know you have to jump through the soup eventually. Evan Williams is one of those good bourbons that we just had to do. Well, you know, as the former pastor has said on many occasions. Even a bad bourbon is still bourbon. Yes. <laughs> oh, honestly, yeah. I've never had a bad bourbon. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, they're all yeah. unique. They're all, I mean, this. there's no question there is a crafting to this. Yes. Uh, this was very, very lovingly uh, created, one might say. <laughs> yeah, I will say this. Uh, you know, most of the bourbons we buy have corks. Yeah. It's very rare. Uh, although the, the Four Roses that we, that we generally get... Uh, generally has a, a screw top, which is very unusual for the quality I that you get. Didn't realize, I guess I've never actually, because you bought it. Yeah, I've bought it, and you've poured it every time I've had it. Oh, have so I? I, okay, okay. Well, I, well, maybe maybe Martin, maybe you did, but I never have, so I didn't even realize that. Well, you may have, but you know, you know, maybe you know. Well, if you pulled it off, yeah. I'm gonna notice, you know. But um, it's not always, you know, the only sign of a quality bourbon. But, you know, it's one of the things, if you're looking for a good bourbon, stay away from the screw tops first. <laughs> it's not so you can't find a good one. Right. Because you absolutely can. Yeah. That Four Roses is... is it's one of our standards, of yeah. We, we Even though that's that your basic Four Roses, it's a, you know, $20 bottle of bourbon, which is just a phenomenal value, in my opinion. Well, yeah. Uh, what was the cost on this? This was about 28 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's still now, good value. Now, that's I great got, value. Now, yeah. I got it at Costco. Mm-hmm. Which you know it's a it's a, a bit you know a better price than you get otherwise. But no, I didn't. Uh, uh, they had the fifty dollar bottles. I didn't get one. Uh, Mrs. Francis would have flogged me uh, like a disobedient sailor in the British Navy had I. Well, done you that. got several bourbons here for us to try, so you know that's you, correct. You can only spend so much on mm, bourbon without getting flogged. That is correct. Flogged. Well, I, I made certain that uh, for this round of of episodes, I've got. Three bottles of uncracked goodness that I've provided here because you know we've. I'm sorry, I just was feeling a little guilty. I've drank too much of your old bourbon and haven't provided lately, <laughs> so I've fixed that. So. Well, I love the fact that you provided the uh, the variety. Um, it's one of the things I love about uh, it. It's not against against Martin because we kill a bottle before Martin moves on to the next one. This we're, is true. Yeah, we, we, will, we, will, we will stay uh, stay with whatever Martin, which is, is fine. Using. Uh, I like. I'm just, but I also like. Well, it. I do. I do have three choices now. For that's us. They are all open, but you now have, we've got, you have built true, them. Yes. Well, the larceny bottle when we were in quarantine took a long time to get. It through did yeah. because you didn't have our help. I understand yeah. that. That's true, and you know, good bourbon is not exactly cheap. You, it's not going to go out and buy a bottle every week. Right. But it's nice though to have that variety. Well, yeah. ultimately, that's our mission in life. To yes. Try them all. Yes. So the verdict on single barrel, Evan Williams, again. It, this I love this color. This great. It does have a great color. Super yeah. amber, uh, dark color. Uh, eight years in the barrel. A little note of vanilla. A little note of kind of a beeswax sort of candle. Uh, very mellow. Very mild. Not a huge range of flavor, but very mellow. I'd give it four stars. Oh, absolutely. If it had a little bit more range of flavor, I might up that. Yeah. But yeah. But you know, this is a good bourbon. I mean, let's face it. Very few bourbons rate five. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, we don't always rate them. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, wait a minute, do we actually rate our No, garments? but it just we occurred to me. You know, yeah, I, well, see, there we go. The inspiration comes when it comes. Yeah, we should be rating them. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, if you do, if you do the five-star system, there's the, you know, the, the fours, the fives. We probably won't get too many ones and twos. I wouldn't think so. Uh, and I would say we would probably even reserve that rare sixth star for the, you know, 18-year-old Pappy. <laughs> Not that we will probably ever try that there, out. There, yeah. No, no, no. We'd, we'd have, have to have we, a benefactor well, if we were going to try that. that. That's right. We might be, perhaps. But you know, we would be more than willing to have a donated bottle uh, given of, to us of, of any for us actually. to talk about. We could spend an entire episode on a bottle of Pappy's. And that can. is a great segue to the next thing I want to bring up. Uh, as we gather here at the Baxter Building, That's right. Studio F, uh-huh. Francis, um, listeners, you may have seen this already on the website, oh, yes. snakesandotters.com, but we have merch. That's right. We yes, are we a do. podcast with merch. Oh, yes. Uh, thanks to Warren at Louisville Sporting Goods, who was able to take Francis's uh, original logo design right. and translate it to a... I call these single color line arts. I don't know if that's what it's yeah, that's really good. called. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Single uh-huh. color line arts. We now have hoodies that are almost in Bellarmine colors. Yeah. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, he's either done Bellarmine or he's done Snakes and Olives. <laughs> that's right. He did. And we're but, all three of us wearing them as we record this so episode. So this is my here. Christmas present to the fellas, a little merch. Mrs. Martin has one. And uh, I think we could probably get more. She's what? wearing hers today as well, by oh, the way. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. But uh, it's, a, it's a red hoodie. It says, Snakes and Otters podcast. has the three fedoras and a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Absolutely. So if you want one, listeners, we're going to have to find some way of doing e-commerce on these. I'm sure we can figure, we can figure that out. out. We'll we can figure, figure it out. out. Uh, we, we got a PayPal account. We can do this. We can Absolutely. get it on Cafe Press or something, I oh, guess. Yeah. And uh, have Warren done. make more. He's a great guy. Uh, really helped us out back when I was coaching archery at a local high school and did uh, T-shirts and uniforms. Molding young gentlemen and ladies. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I was super thrilled that uh, it was able to get done. I, was, I wasn't sure he would be able to get them all finished, but he... Uh, well, you've got a picture of it uh, on the website, too. Yes, yes. There right. is a photograph on snakesandotters.com. And you can you can see what they look like, but it, they are great. Yeah, and check out the regular content. We finally got kind of gotten into the groove with this regular posting stuff here. Martin Mondays, Wobbit Wednesdays, and Francis Fridays. Yeah, so, there's uh, some good good bonus content. Yeah, we've, we've done some good stuff so far on there, and it, it'll direct you to some episodes. So, guys, uh, back to the war in the Atlantic. Uh, back right. to the yeah, the wolves among us, the battle of the Atlantic. Um, so before we Go on. Something that, because uh, you know me, like context, right? Context. Give me some context. So, um, one of the things that, um, when you look at battles and how they're won, you often look at um, the numbers. You know, did you, first of all, did you retain control of the battlefield, which ultimately they do not, obviously. Right. Um, you know, how many men did you lose? That sort of thing. So, there were approximately 30,000 U-boat sailors that were killed uh, or lost. Uh, that's actually less than the number of uh, sailors killed uh, and merchant seamen killed yeah. by half. Right. Less than half. So from a manpower perspective, it would seem like they were doing okay. Uh, 3,500 merchant vessels were sunk. That's a massive... When you think about that, that is 700 ships a year. Two ships a day. That's right. It's a massive number. And, you know, when you consider how much that is compressed into the first couple of years of the war, 40, 41, 42, um, that is just astounding how much shipping they were sinking at the first three years of the war. It almost worked. Yeah, it almost almost worked. It was very close. Yeah. Um, 175 warships, uh, 741 RAF Coastal Command aircraft were actually lost, which is astounding to think about it because they actually had some subs that were equipped with anti-aircraft weapons. They were really kind of ineffectual, so it's kind of surprising that there were that many uh, lost. Yeah. But um, 783 submarines, though, and 47 other ships were lost by the Germans. And 500, uh, 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 it's approximately 500 killed. Oh, that's from Italy. Uh, so Italy, 500 uh, men were killed and they only lost 17 subs. So they were not a naval power. 
No. Which is ironic considering, you know, they're surrounded by water on three sides. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, their idea is to focus on the Mediterranean. Right. They only needed the ships day. to go back and forth to Africa, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, it was, was a different, it was a different war in many respects. Yeah. It's kind of. Uh, but when you think about that, 783 were lost. And we know that not you know that some did survive to the end of the war. So we're figuring anywhere between eight hundred and nine hundred were were built. Yeah. And the the kill ratio basically is five to one, which is again astound a little less than five to one. To me, that is just astounding. Yeah. And yet, they never except I think one or two months out of the entire war, hit the amount of tonnage they needed to sink, in order to. At least stay even. They never got ahead. Yes, they were too vulnerable in many respects. Uh, they, the life, the lifespan of a sub and its crew was enormously short. It was probably the worst, one of the worst details in the entire war you could be assigned to, because your likelihood of coming home was very remote. Most yeah. of them just did not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was it was almost as bad, if not worse, than being an air, airplane pilot in World War One. I mean, they just didn't come back. They just, you know, that's well. Bomber pilots uh, in in Europe did not have a great. That's right. Yeah, that's another right either. Yes, uh, that's a very. It's it's yeah, it's awful stuff. Eighth Air Force bomber crews really got chewed up. They did. Um, so, when you think about those numbers, to me, again, it goes back to. You know, thank God he Hitler had such an ego, that he thought that they could do anything. Um, it just, it really, it's one of those things that, you know, we kind of take for granted that, well, yeah, they, you know, we were always going to win once the U.S. got involved because, you know, we look back on it as a fait accompli because it's all said and done. Well, because we had, you know, resources, we had manpower, we had audacity. (laughs) We did, but, you know, just as in World War One, you know, we had to figure it out as we were going along. That's right. in, In many ways. Because in in the in the Pacific, we were fighting a much different naval war. Yeah, very much so. And you know, submarines were used, but they were not nearly as uh, plentiful. Yeah, uh, they were not used in the same way. The Japanese did not adapt these type of tactics. No, and neither did we. It well, was it was definitely more of a lone wolf operate on your own, operate independently. I, I think the Japanese didn't consider submarines honorable. Uh, so for them, it was they made very limited. Use. They had they made, good. Oh yeah, ones, they had they some. Yeah, they were very effective with them yeah. at times. Yeah. Uh, and they were very innovative with yeah. what they did. They had the the small submarines yeah. they used uh, uh, before Pearl Harbor. Uh, one was just recently found a few years ago, sunk not far from the the uh, uh, the entrance to the harbor. Yes. That you know we knew that there must have been one, and they discovered it not long ago. So they used it and used them effectively, but. Not as effectively yeah. as they could. Yeah, I mean the key difference being the Pacific. There's no ally that we're trying to supply. Well, no, and so that. it's it's all it's potentially entirely offensive. So the big carrier makes a difference. It right. does. The the punch that you can bring to bear, the size of it is the big difference maker. The Atlantic is a defensive because you've got two allies you're trying to supply because you're trying to get the Lindley stuff. To Stalin as well, and that's a much harder thing to do because you've got to go through uh, North uh, Sea, North Sea, and when you look at a map, the islands that 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 you know are just littered in the North Sea between Denmark and the Scandinavian countries, you know there's no straight shot. Yeah, you you got to really run a gauntlet through the Baltic and the North Sea to get to where you can offload things to Russia. Right, and you know they even tried the Arctic route. Uh, Which was actually, I mean, that's where the Turpits went down, was in the Arctic Sea. Right. Because uh, they, they, Hitler knew, you know, this is a great spot to beat the snot out of them as they came through. And they all, you know, they were very successful. If they'd have had, if they'd have had 30 of those things instead of just a, fi- a few, it would have been a big difference. Yeah. Right. Eventually, the, again, the technology swings to the Allies' way. They close the gap. They're able, using escort carriers, not full-size ones, but smaller ones, they're able to put the... ASW assets primarily in the air. They're, they're able to put uh, the planes in the air that they need to cover the convoys and feed Britain and get the equipment over there to get ready for Normandy. Right. And right. once you have the equipment 
over there, then the Battle of the Atlantic is won. Even though it's not over, <clears throat> it's, right. it's not over till the end. I mean, it's they're literally yeah, it continues because they're literally sinking the submarines right up, basically to the day that Dernit surrenders. Um, and again, a lot goes into it: the Enigma, breaking the codes, the development of the technology. But once you can cover by air the entire route, then you've got the battle won. Right. And well, and it also um, doing that and putting those spotlights on the planes so that they could search at night yes. made a huge difference because they could no longer run on the surface at night. And charge their batteries that way. Yeah, you're um, you're forcing twenty four hours of stealth. Right. So you are now limiting their, and that's part of the other problem is they have a limited range. They have a limited range. They have a limited ability to carry fuel and torpedoes. And once they're out of torpedoes, they have to go home. Yeah. Because that is their only offensive weapon. Yeah. You know those deck guns are nothing. Those are for, uh, you know, surface ships. Oh, when yeah. you when you Taking have prisoners. Take, yeah. When you have captured a, a merchant vessel. And, you know, by doing that, you have not only uh, effectively changed their tactics, but you've taken away one of their biggest uh, abilities, which is the ability to stay out twice as long. Yeah. So. And that's, basically, that's May of 43. Yeah. Uh, by then, it's, it's a that, done deal. Yeah, they call that Black May, and basically, Dernitz calls it off. Um, and that's, again, it... it we're focusing on these ones that really made the difference, these battles that made the difference, what really caused the Allied defeat of Germany. And this is a biggie. Mm -hmm. Britain surviving and not starving and getting the equipment across. Yeah, to be the staging area for Normandy and, and Operation Overlord and all the rest of the stuff that all comes out of, you know, it's all connected. Yeah, yep. It's... It, 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 it doesn't work any other way. There's no way to invade France from, you from know, the US, New yeah. Jersey. Yeah. You can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. Yeah, you no. can't do it. <laughs> well, so. you know, this is, a, a, you know, one of the great what-if scenarios of World War II is, uh, it's a two-part. One, what if the Germans had annihilated the, the, the British at Dunkirk instead of going for Paris? So that might have been a mortal blow. Um, but the other one is, what if they had been able to invade Great Britain? This is, and actually, this is one of the things that Hitler actually knew that it was not yeah, feasible. Was, yeah, because, or at least his his generals were able to, to to talk him into this that it was not feasible. It's a, another symptom of the too much, too soon with too little. They don't have the ability to create a surface navy. You need a surface navy to be able to invade an island. That's right. You got to get the troops over there because you got to get the troops there. So you have to be able to protect them. The subs can't do that. So you either have to starve Great Britain or you have to invade them. You cannot do both. That's right. They don't have the resources. Right. And even though they... Now, granted, I don't know that turning... Instead of building the, the, the battleships and the pocket battleships and what service Navy... They, because they, they still had to have some. Because they had to protect their own commerce, obviously. What little there was. Um, but they could never build enough or they, did, they couldn't wait long enough. To build enough, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you, you to invade Britain, you got to have two things. You got to have air air supremacy, which right. they did not achieve. Came close, but didn't achieve they, it. Yeah, didn't achieve they, it. Yeah, they and then, close. like I said, you've got to have the surface fleet, and that's what eventually uh, you know makes Normandy a success. We've got air supremacy and the surface fleet to get over there and get it done. Right. That and Hitler was taking a nap. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, you, you honestly, I don't think you can discount that because nobody, nobody wanted wait. to make a decision. Yeah, nobody. No. They, they, they froze with inaction yeah. and wouldn't make a decision. And when he did wake up, he was having a tantrum. Yeah. So you, you can't interrupt that. So the Americans had a foothold, and the British and the Canadians, they had a foothold by the time he was able to be approached. By the way, did you know we had some, some invasion problems <laughs> going on over here? Yeah. Boom! It's not over really here. a con. Yeah. yeah, you know, you know where they expected it. It, it really the well, Normandy was not a sideshow; it was the real thing. It right, was. and that they were very good at. By this point, they they figured out how to play, play the intelligence war yeah. effectively. Yeah, and deceive the Germans, and their the G Germans own hubris. That's one of our favorite words. Yes, yes. plays highly into it that. It does, uh, and as well as the cult 
of silence that Hitler himself cultivated at this point. Yeah, because he, he brooked no dissension. That's right. And that's, you know, probably, maybe, militarily, his greatest failure. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you start out as a corporal. It's leadership failure, yeah. Well, you know, in he, World yeah. War One, He has and, no ability to do that. And the myth is that all the officers were incompetent, so you don't trust, you know, the you existing trust. military establishment. Yeah. You think you're smarter than they are. So Sometimes you are, but most of the time you're not. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know... Yeah, most of the time you're probably not. You know, maybe tactics on the ground. Sure, absolutely. And, uh, but strategy, no. That's no. right. Although, I'll grant you, in World War One, the strategy was, was effed up, too. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they, some of those French generals should have been shot, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I mean, there's there's plenty of that to go around, because the, Germ- you know, the Germans had a lot of... Well, we'll go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, we could. We, we, uh, we're, but, we're getting close to the end anyway. You know, again, this all goes back to... Um, to me, uh, you know, you look at some of the mistakes. Germany was totally disarmed at the end of World War One. Didn't start rearming until the early 30s. Yeah. So less than 10 years. Oh, yeah. So what Hitler did in the time they had is absolutely astounding mm-hmm. what he was able to build, which is scary. Mm-hmm. Because if he had waited another five years to go to war. Like they wanted him to. Yeah. What, what or even just had. wait another two years to invade the Soviet Union? Yeah. Well, that may have been and just just sit. You control from the Baltic to the Mediterranean. Yeah. And you know maybe that would not have worked ultimately because you know maybe Stalin would have you know yeah that was given them time to adapt. That's why they didn't do it. It's, that was their belief anyway. Right. Uh, they had to strike now. And you know Stalin, maybe if. If Hitler had not been, if he'd been a little bit more um, um, clandestine in what he was doing, not yeah. being so, if he'd waited, and wait to invade Poland, wait till the next year, wait to take Czechoslovakia, yeah, in the Sudetenland, because I mean everything was started far too soon. Thank God. Well, yeah, ultimately that's what enabled the war to go the way that it goes. Yes. Yeah, I mean for all the successes yeah. early on, it, it was all. It wasn't smoke and mirrors, but it was all that that you know. It's like, you know, the 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 smaller boxer getting uh, one lucky punch in on the big guy the first time, yeah. and but it might be the only time. It might be, you know. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's Buster Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Didn't expect that one, but yeah, that works great. Yeah, that's yeah. a great analogy. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, because you know, because as we said, he had won in Europe. He had won the land war in Europe. Yeah, I mean, France and, had to surrender, and he had enormous resources by getting that. We I mean, have to he remember did, that, but it got... still wasn't enough, right? Because he could, while he could get the material, the raw material, he could not turn the population into the to the war effort like he could at home, right? Uh, one because they were going to be unwilling, right? But two, uh, you know, you could never really build your war making factories outside of Germany because of sabotage. You know, it just, it, it yeah. just was not feasible yeah. to do that. Well, and while they viewed technology as important, they never focused on one. There was always this... It's too much squirrel going on. Yeah, there was always this good. Hitler's wonder good. weapons. Hitler's, you know, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. Yeah. Again, we mentioned in the show prep, the tanks. They were great tanks, but they never just picked one design and built it right. the way the Allies did. Right. You know, built it in enough numbers to make a difference. Yeah. Even uh, though it wasn't perfect, it was everywhere. Yeah. And that's all. That was the goal. Was yeah. That was the goal. You yeah. know, pick out one thing, build a ton of it. The Dakota, uh, the aircraft for for cargo and men, um, the Sherman tank. Mm-hmm. Just build enough of them. Yes, it might not be as good as a as a tiger tank, but we're going to overwhelm them in numbers. Right. And, and the Battle of the Atlantic is kind of the same story. It's a technological race that the Americans and the Brits win by spring of 43. And that allows them to have the air cover that they need to cover the convoys completely and to even drive the subs essentially back to the pens in France. Yeah, You can't really even leave France now. Without being subject to air attack day and night. 
by right. the Brits and the and the Americans. And you know, when you think about it, um, the idea that, you know, as we said before, he had to win fast. It was the only way he had any chance. But when you think about it, what we did as the Allies, yeah. there was no way that ultimately, uh, I think he could have won going when he did, simply because um, they just didn't have enough manpower. That's correct. Great Britain. That's why know, they Britain. wanted to go quickly, because yeah. they, they wanted to basically give us... They were thinking we would back down. Right. Manpower between Great Britain and Germany was approximately the same, give or take yeah. a little population-wise. France, Germany... I mean, they're all relatively uh, close. Taking out France um, was... Obviously, huge because it takes that major player off the board. Yep. Even takes the navy off the board because yep. you know France, as a surrendered power, has a new government. You know, unless everybody in the navy decides to you know, scoot on over to French Indochina, which they really didn't. No, nope. um, you know they're pretty much taken out of the war. Right. Uh, what French troops you have are all the ones that are outside of France, and the free French forces, free French forces, and, yeah. and, and you know, like you said, with the navy. Unless it's a mutiny, officially, right. yeah. they're on, they're neutral, right? And Great Britain, if they had been on the continent, you know, continental power, probably would have lost just as quickly. Yeah, and they feared that because they, they they were they almost did. If Hitler had had what it took to invade them properly, they were afraid of it. They were right. very afraid of it. But because right he reasons. couldn't invade, and then when you get the U.S. involved, which we were what something like 150 million people at the time. Yeah, that would be the yeah so, about in the ballpark. So yeah. that's approximately two and a half times the manpower in Germany, and you've got because I want to say sixty six, sixty million, something like that, between Great Britain and Germany. So you've got approximately two hundred million when you include Great Britain, yeah, and sixty million, and they've already taken massive losses by the time we actually invade in nineteen forty four. Because they've lost in Africa, they're losing and have lost in, in uh, Russia. It's once the attrition really starts. Yeah. It's in the numbers. The numbers become an the techno yeah, and the technological uh, race is the only thing that could have saved them. If they had managed to develop an atomic bomb before us, before the end of the war, then they probably could have at least gotten a truce, a ceasefire, and you know that's what they were counting on, and that's what they were hoping for. Yeah. One of the other things I find fascinating, start of the war, you have tanks are essentially just machine gun platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got planes are all very, uh, you know, the Messerschmitts are incredibly fast, all of yeah. that. But you have cavalry, granted it's the poles only uh, for the most part. But you actually still have horses being used in various parts of the armies, including us in Great Britain. But they had cavalry <laughs> actually take the battlefield at the beginning of the war. Yeah, and at the end of the war, we're dropping nuclear weapons. When you think about the right. span of technology and how it advanced in this war, it is breathtaking. That's right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely breathtaking. It is the story of, of technology. Yeah, technology it really triumphs. Is. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the, as you said earlier, the Battle of the Atlantic is a great example of the technology because the technology is the driving force yeah. in what causes them to lose. That's good. Gentlemen, that was pretty super. I think we really covered the Battle of the Atlantic in a really fresh, interesting way. I will say this for folks that want to watch more on this. Two great movies come to mind. Uh, one is recent and one is old. Uh, perhaps considered the best war movie of all time is Das Boot yeah. from 1981, which is from the German perspective. And it is the whole thing from within a German U-boat. It was fantastic. It is uh, it won Academy Award after Academy Award, and it was in a freaking foreign language, mind you. Yeah. Uh, get get the dubbed version. No, don't, excuse me. Not, not the dubbed version, but the, the subtitled version. Don't get the dubbed version. Oh. It doesn't sound as good. Uh, oh well, it, yeah, it never was. Yeah, it's it's just not you miss stuff. Uh, it's it's worth getting the subtitled version on that. The second movie is one that just dropped this summer, and damn, because of this COVID, it got almost no uh, distribution. It's Greyhound with Tom Hanks, which tells the story from a commander of the Allied side, yeah. uh, a convoy commander. I, I mean, most people know Tom Hanks. You're probably guaranteed a good movie. Anything he's in. Uh, this was uh, it was a, a sad thing that it didn't get the distribution, but it's available 
online now. Yeah, streaming like crazy. Streaming yeah. like crazy. It's worth your time. It's it's the, both of those are really. Yeah, we've good. really seen some really good war movies the last few years. Yes, we have. You know, uh, Dunkirk was great. Uh, Darkest Hour, which Darkest is, Hour. to me that was even superior to that, even though there's no battle part. Those two actually are best watched back to back because they're the, kind of the same thing at different perspectives of right. what's going on. What was the? Uh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, the World War One movie that was basically shot. It wasn't in one shot because technically it was two. 1917. 17, 1917. yes. 1917. That's right. That was a phenomenal movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Yes, fantastic. We need to have a Snakes and Otters viewing of that because I have not seen it yet. Oh, my gosh. Because I wanted to save to watch it when we could do a Snakes and Otters. I tell you what, that is phenomenal. Visually, you know, it's it's not the scale of something like uh, almost any other war movie it's a personal experience it is a personal experience but it is a phenomenal and visually it is incredible yeah it's it it was it it deserves all the accolades it got and those are great jumping off points to bring us to where we need to go yep francis buddy what is up next code of honor of course we're going to uh gonna go back to the well uh we have no idea what we're going to do but then again we never do uh we're going to figure out ways robert says one of these days he's not going to go last uh that's up to him i suppose that's true at some point i am going to pre-pick a quote and i think you guys should pick one based off of my quote i think we should do a total reversal uh, hey, I'm totally, well, that won't be next time that won't no, be next no, no time. it won't be next time because i have to prepare we'd have to get ready for that yeah. one that's right no but it's going to be great stuff as always it's one of our very most popular ones that we yes. do Code of Honor gets downloaded a ton. All right. We love Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.